Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. A special Word podcast uh, that comes to us. It's an outside broadcast, I suppose. It's an on-location recording from the the home of Philip Ball in uh, south-east London. Philip, thanks very much for letting us in your house. My pleasure. Uh, And I'm accompanied by Kate Mossman. Hello there, you're right. Uh, Because we're going to be talking about Philip's book, The Music Instinct, which has just come out, which is subtitled How Music Works and Why We Can't Do Without It. So that's... We'll come to that in a second. But what we traditionally do on Word Podcast, Philip, in order that people can place you, can you tell us what music, if any, your parents had in your house when you were a child? <laughs> they won't thank me if I do, but, uh, you know, what sticks in my mind is is um, probably the worst of it, which is James Last. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah, it really was, I'm afraid. I'm sure that there, there were a lot of things that were better than that, but somehow that stays. James Last and Terry Wogan. Oh, right. And, uh, and did you have a radiogram or a record player oh, or a did. stereo or whatever? We did. And I, you know, I remember having one of those little tiny portable uh record players that uh you you know you you used to get that uh you take up into your bedroom and they had these little tinny speakers and i think that's what i heard most of my first music on and so did you study music at school and beyond well i learned um piano in the way that kids do i didn't sort of study it to any greater degree than that and um you know i left home at 16 and stopped lessons then so i did didn't progress you know a, lo- a long way through and after that it was kind of... Uh, I, I continued to play music a lot, but it was learning on the job. Because you had a science background, didn't you? That's right. Yeah. So I went to study science, yeah. what, what kind of science were you in? I studied chemistry, first of all, and then did a PhD in physics. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we were interested as well. We were thinking about how, you know, when did you first start to listen to music in a, a technical way and become interested in the way that tones are constructed and that melodies are made and everything was that way back when you were listening to last 
probably not, fortunately. But I, I guess, I mean, you have to study musical theory um, to some degree when, if you study, if you learn any instrument. Mm. Um, so, so I did that then. But I guess it was when I, I played in a rock band for two years between my first degree and my PhD. Yeah. And, the name of the rock uh, band being? Uh, oh gosh. Well, if anyone remembers this name, then I congratulate them. It's Abandoned City. But you did. You did. Uh, you <laughs> there were will broadcast. be someone. We were. We did a session for Tommy Vance in 1985, probably. Um, and you were the, saying which just turned up on the radio. Which the turned up the other day, bizarrely. Um, whether it's ever made an appearance between those times, I don't know, and I strongly doubt. But for some reason, it turned up a couple of weeks ago on BBC Six. Right, it was very right. gratifying. Um, but I guess, you know, playing in bands, um, you, you, you start, and particularly composing, which uh, mm. I did, you have to start thinking more in terms of... Uh, some kind of you know how music is structured i mean a lot of clearly a lot of um popular musicians you know don't know anything uh, very much about the the hard theory of yeah. music if you like but you certainly think about structures about chords and chord sequences and uh, and rhythm so you know you have to start to think about the elements of music yes yeah we went to fraser lurie and i went to see you at um the royal institution giving a talk on the book the other day and um, we were really interested in something you showed us about the way that intervals affect whether music is pleasing to the ear. So the distance between notes, basically. And you showed us how lots of the most popular tunes are based on the notes being very, very close together. Right. And the, the tunes which the, are not so pleasing to the ear are based on big intervals and the notes all jumping around here and there. Oh, well, there's, well there's, there's two different things, really. There's one um, a consideration when the, uh, about how one note follows another, mm-hmm. um, and then there's another about how two notes sounded together sound. So one is about melody and one is about harmony. Yes. So for, uh, for, for, for tunes, for just the melody... Um, it's true that most melodies in most cultures um, tend to make small jumps between successive pitches. So, you know, you have uh, sort of... All that's doing is walking up and down the scale. Okay, it's just going sort of one step at a time along the scale. Um, And most tunes follow that, not necessarily to that degree, but uh, those small steps are much more common... Um, than than big ones, but yeah. then I, I demonstrated there, a, you know, a tune where you did have, you do have sometimes these big jumps in tunes. So you have, and um, there, though, at the beginning, you've got this really big jump, which is an octave. And that's yeah. really unusual. If you look at how often that appears in most melodies, um, it's very, very uncommon. And the reason for that is that um, when you have a big pitch jump, it, it, it tends to break a melody. We tend to sort of see it as, as though the old one melody has stopped and another one has started. Yes. Um, and uh, so the, you know, the, the, the clever thing with uh, Somewhere of the Rainbow is that they, um, uh, they get around that idea. Uh, they get around that fact. It doesn't sound, you know, you do get a sense of a continuous melody. And there are various reasons why that's so. One is that the, that jump occurs right at the beginning of the tune um, with the first two notes, really. Yeah. And as it does also with this one. OK, there again, you've got an octave jump, but it's the first two notes. Yeah. Um, so you haven't even got... The tune hasn't even got started, so there's nothing to break in a yeah. sense. But also, um, the notes are held for a long time, relatively long time. So it's almost as though you've got sort of time to catch up at the top of the jump. Yes. Um, and also in, in that melody and in most others that have these big jumps, you, 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 you have other big jumps that follow it. Um, so another one there, you see. And um, 
It's uh, and and that's a sort of way of signalling that those jumps are intentional, yeah. right? In a sense, they're so going to come round things, again. Yeah, so so you know, all of those things help to just sort of bind it all together. This is the key to making a good melody that yeah. somehow you've got to make sure it all hangs together. It doesn't feel like it's going all over the place. Because that feels uh, just uh, going through your book. One of the things you you touch on in, in an early chapter of this book, Philip, is is the notion of uh, of music being either comforting or strange. Tell us a bit about that. Well, in Western culture now, I guess uh, we're, we primarily use music in a, in a form that gives us comfort. Um, you know, now that we have the technology to basically carry around our own individualized soundtrack all the time, we do that. Um, it's almost as though, you know, this is what we wanted music to be doing all along. And now we can do it. We can permanently cocoon ourselves within music. So clearly it has that very sort of comforting role. Uh, but in some other cultures, it's quite it's, it's much more of a social thing, less than an in- individual thing, and much more about something that happens when people get together or that brings people together. Of course, that that's also true in Western culture. Um, so in all cultures, music seems to have served a purpose in, for example, ritual um, or any sorts of group gatherings. Somehow there has to be music there. Um, in some cultures, you know, you simply cannot have a ritual without the proper music, and uh, it, and the proper music has to be performed perfectly, has to be performed note for note correctly. Otherwise, the ritual isn't valid. Um, and one of the ideas about where music came from is that it uh, primarily uh, th- that in evolutionary terms it served this socially cohesive role that it brought people together and defined a particular group. I was interested as well in the idea of things being sounding happy or sad and whether that's a learnt thing that you get to associate the sound of a funeral march with what it was you know, first used in the stuff or whether it's something about the way it's structured that kind of resonates with people and makes them feel sad instinctively. Is it like learnt or is it sort of... Yeah, well, there's quite a bit of good evidence now that some of those characteristics of what we sort of perceive as the mood of music are universal in the sense that pretty much everyone from every culture seems to recognize the same things so you know in most cultures in the world happy music is relatively fast-paced and relatively loud Mm. and jaunty really um and sad music is soft and slow yeah um and, you know, it's been shown, for example, that uh, some Western classical music that had those characteristics was played to people from a remote tribe in the Cameroon who'd never heard Western music. And they perceived pretty much uh, the same kinds of moods as, as Western listeners would, yeah. would ascribe to the music. Um, and it seems that those are probably stemming from the some kind of mimicry that's going on, that the music, in a way, is is behaving as a sad or a happy person behaves. So, you know, <laughs> when we're sad, we speak more softly, we move more slowly. Um, so it seems that we can sort of read those off the surface of music. And to that degree, you know, there is this, this cross-cultural uh, consensus. Yeah, on, you know, on and what it's got something to saying. do with, like, the minor key as well, probably, as well. Well, like, now, well. that's more contentious. And I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I guess I feel that, um, that the, our associations with minor key music being sad or somehow anguished, that those are purely learned. They're learned, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that has been controversial. It still continues to be controversial. Some people think that there are perhaps acoustic reasons why minor key music would sound sad to everyone. But I think it's if you just look at the way music goes in other cultures, that um, it seems that it's very hard to make that case, you mm. know, that there are cultures that 
play use what we would see as minor key music and they use it they you know they explicitly say that this is a happy tune yes um, and it's probably changed with history there's probably stuff written in minor key 600 years ago that was happy court music like madrigals and stuff like that and and yet now we just wouldn't associate those sounds with like happy things well it's it's only since um i suppose after the renaissance that the i that the happy that major and minor keys became established in western music before yeah. that music was uh was modal it used different sorts of essentially kinds of scales that came from the greek system they're actually modes mm. um so they're they're a bit like scales but there are lots more of them and some of them sound to us now like uh major modes and some sound like minor modes and some just sound strange um but if we look at the way uh greek the the greek writers plato and aristotle talked about the different modes um it seems that they had different associations with them that modes that might be minor key like uh when we hear them now they might say you know this was sort of military music yeah. or this was music to sort of make us feel robust or something you know something that we wouldn't expect yeah. so i think when we look through history as well we can you know it it becomes very hard to make a case that there's anything at all fundamental about minor keys being sad yeah so it changes all the time i was i was intrigued you you referred to a, a tribe in the congo who 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 reckoned that all music is discovered not yeah. composed. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a lovely idea. And, um, <laughs> you know, in a, in a sense, it, it's basically saying there is... The, it, it's saying that the, the people who perform the music aren't... Yeah, they're not the creators of it. It sort of comes through them. I mean, you know, this will probably sound familiar to some people in the west that there's this sort of idea that you know music just appears in the minds of composers that's actually something that um that i think is is very much a product of the romantic era we got this romantic idea not just in music but in art generally that it somehow you know comes from from somewhere from god or from you know some sort of inspiration from something out there um and so you don't believe that i well i i guess i think um that Music, like a lot of art, uh, music is, uh, a lot of it is about craft. It, 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 it's something that you can learn. You can learn how to, I think pretty much anyone uh, who, who doesn't have, you know, strict tone deafness, and very, very few people do, um, c- could learn to compose music that the rest of us would consider listenable. We might not consider it great, but you know, I think pretty much everyone can do it. And some composers, the, the German composer Paul Hindemith, for example, in the 20th century, was very opposed to this romantic idea that music you know comes out of the ether he was his view was that you 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 kind of sit down and you quite systematically figure out how it goes um and i think igor stravinsky's music was uh you know has that sort of feeling to it as well i mean stravinsky thought that music ultimately has a religious purpose but i think the actual process of constructing music he saw saw as something quite methodical quite systematic it always intrigues me i'm not a musician at all but talking to pop Composers that they will always tell you when they when they first when a hit first occurred to them, their first thought was, "Where did that come from? <laughs> well, you, you know, know, where did I steal that from?" Well, I'm not aware that was a number of tunes that in the world. Is a key it's thing. a very narrow yeah. area, you know. So, you know, if somebody's working in the you know the blues idiom. They're, they're yeah. not going to depart very far from what's already been There's done many times before. They're just yeah. going to put it together in a slightly different form, aren't they? I, I, I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, within an idiom, um, the, the rules are often quite tightly constrained. And, you know, you can see that for a lot of popular music that, it, it you know, it sounds like other, it sounds like other things you've heard, basically. 
um, which you know may not be a bad thing. I mean, often it that that's a very good thing. Often it draws some of its appeal from associations with other things. And you know, I, I think again, the, the same is true in other arts. That you know, no uh, writer, no novelist uh, would pretend that they're they're working from scratch. They're, you know, they're, they're, they have their influences. The same is true in music. So, you know, I think in a sense you have to have influences. You have to have other ideas that you're drawing on and mutating. Yeah. And which, um, in the book, which pop and rock writers lent themselves best to the, the study that you've covered in the book? I mean, you're saying Bacharach earlier. Uh, well, Bacharach does, because he does interesting things. I mean, actually, uh, you know, I think probably pretty much any... Um, pretty much any group, certainly pretty much any sort of idiom within pop and rock mm. music could be used to illustrate a lot of the points I was making. Yeah. Um, what did you do with the Bacharach stuff? And How did you? Well, you know, one of the things that he does is to use interesting little switches of rhythm. It puts mm. in an extra beat or an extra bar or something, which um, is something the Beatles did a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's... It's a way of, for one thing, it's a way of surprising us. And, you know, very often techniques like this for surprising us, if they're done well, then uh, they also give a, a little emotional lift. Mm. There's some sort of emotional response to, to, to you know, something that is unexpected. Um, if I say if it's done well, that's the case. If yes. it's done badly, it just becomes irritating. <laughs> and yeah, and you Did know, you I illustrate think, yeah. any of the Beatles um, on the piano now? Any, any of the sort of little lifts that they've thrown into any of the music that sort of catches uh, your attention in that? Um, well, I guess uh, I mean you know a very simple one is is all you need is love, which sounds. So simple, you know. A lot of people think, you know, that they, they, they sort of start to sing it, and actually, then you realise it's it's a bit strange because it's got this mm. funny little jump. So you've got, um, uh, I suppose, it's going. Yeah. So so it's it, it's sort of going one two one two. Yeah, so it's that, missing a beat, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you don't necessarily sort of notice that when you're listening to it. That's, you know, that's when it's been done well. You, mm. you kind of, something registers in your mind, but you don't think, oh, they've missed a beat or something. And that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, that's how it should be. It trips you up a little um, bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's interesting, because I, I, I think the definition of catchiness in pop music is that it's familiar, but you know that there's still something you've yet to discover about it. And that's what mm. makes you keep on that's listening why it to it. Out it's as well sl- from there's the a other. slight strangeness put there with the familiarity, mm. and you can tell that when you hear the record very early on. You yeah. know if something's bland and is not going to add anything further, but then you know. And the Beatles were a classic case of this. That you listen to per- Paperback Writer for the first time, you thought this is catchy, but there's more catchiness to come mm. yeah. in this record. Yeah, because this also relates to something I wanted to ask you about. Because presumably the experience of listening to music nowadays. It's fundamentally different from what it was 200 years ago. Because, you know, if you went to hear, I don't know, the first performance of Beethoven's Fifth, you were probably only going to hear it once in your life. Yes. <laughs> Whereas nowadays... That's such a weird thought, isn't yeah, it, that you'd only hear it once. Whatever you hear, you know you're going to hear as many times as you'd like. Yeah. Yeah, How yeah. does that change yeah. things? Yeah, well, it does. I mean, you know, I think the other thing is that you're, you're you, you, in that time you would hear such a small selection of the music that was out there because you'd have to hear it all in, in live <clears> performance. Um I mean, it does change things, but the interesting thing is that it doesn't change things as much as you th- thought it might. You know, the, the the fact that we can listen again and again to music is a bizarre thing. If you particularly, if you um, if you take at face value this idea that it's uh, our expectations being tripped up are what 
creates emotion in music. So you'd think, well, okay, um, that might h- happen the first time you hear it, but the next time you know that yeah. it's going it's to go like Why that. Why does it go affect differently. you again? <laughs> um, and so this is very interesting from that idea. And the, 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 uh, the explanation that's given, I think it, you know, it, it does seem to have something to, uh, to be said for it, is that the mechanisms that are triggering the emotion when we, when we hear something unexpected like that are ones that, are, that, that sort of take a shortcut around our logical processing circuitry, mm. if you like. They go straight to the emotion centres. Um, so no matter how many times we hear... I mean, I, you know, I have favourite pieces of music like this where I you know, I know that there's this bit coming up that I love. I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but it always has its, that, that same effect. So yeah. somehow, you know, it is, it is getting round our sort of conscious mind. And somehow it gets, it gets more powerful the more you listen to it. And then your hair stands on end for something that you've heard a million times before because really you've been waiting can. for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, the idea, the idea behind all of this um, is in evolutionary terms is that um, we're, we're pattern seekers and that's why that's why these uh, these sort of little blips in the pattern have an emotional uh, an emotional effect because you know we we feel pleased with ourselves when we've seen the pattern and um, if if something deviates from that then you know we have a moment's sort of hesitation and doubt and then you know if we find that we actually get what we're expecting eventually then we have this this satisfaction and this 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 sort of release of tension um but the idea is that you know if 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 this came from basically from from something primitive where we were recognizing not patterns in in mozart or beatles but patterns on the savannah in animal cries and we had to get it right then it had to go straight to our emotions before we had the, the, the sort of luxury of, you know, thinking, oh, is that a tiger or is that just a chimpanzee? <laughs> because, you know, Too we much. had to, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it kicks into the emotions and, and gets you moving oh, before exactly. you can yeah. you can think about it. This that it does make a lot of sense how you know if that's what's going on then that allows music to just have this this the same emotional effect again and again. Can you think of one uh, rock or pop song that still has an effect on you as the same as it did the first time you'd heard it and it's never worn off in that way? Uh, I, you know, I, I think I think a lot of them do. I mean, that's um, you know that's the that's the amazing thing that i i guess you know i i still i mean it's true that our tastes are um pretty much sort of set in stone a lot of the time by the time we're 25 and that's why (laughs) you know i have that's my excuse for still listening to the sensational alex harvey band (laughs) exactly um and but but you know they still do i mean when i hear for example um alex harvey's anthem um Mm. on the impossible dream right at the end of there every time the bagpipes come in i'm a sucker for bagpipes (laughs) particularly there you know every time i just know that it'll something will well up inside me the word a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Do you ever get worried that it's going to wear off? I do that with new songs. Like I won't let, let myself listen to them too much because I know that maybe after the tenth listening, it just doesn't have the same effect that it did on the ninth. You're like, oh no, I've lost it. I've lost my love for this it, song. Really well, great. you know, it, it, I, I guess it can do, but I, I, I sort of wonder. I mean, you know, when you're a teenager, you will listen, you know, to the same song back to back endlessly, yeah. and, um, but. You know, I, I guess I what I find is that that doesn't really happen for stuff that I that that, that really hits the mark. Yeah, um, stuff made it through to you. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. What about the, um, the the sort of literal interpretation of particularly classical music? I, one of my main memories of school music is is being sat in a hall while while the teacher would play, you know, an old LP of you know, <laughs> Beethoven and say, "Now I want you to imagine." 
forests or you know, <laughs> waterfalls yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or Napoleon. Or yeah. And I, I'm still very much struck by that idea that, that people listen to things, purport to listen to things, and purport to be able to you know, detect historical events in bits of music. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's a common... That, you know, that, that's a very sort of familiar image. And, and it, it, to some extent, some musical analysts and critics do the same thing in a more sort of elevated way. But basically, that's, you know, they're, they're wanting to try to get us to do the same thing, that they ask, you know, what is this piece of Beethoven about? about. And they create a narrative around it. And some of the narratives are extraordinary that, uh, that people will invent, you know, about what was going on in the composer's psyche when this was, was, <laughs> was happening. And they're, you know, inevitably more or less fiction. Uh, I mean, they, 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 they have to be. The idea that everyone will listen to that music and think, you know, exactly of this same detailed narrative um it just seems to be nonsense to me um or even a, you know even a sketchy narrative i mean very often for for classical particularly for beethoven and you know um early romantic composers people loved the idea that it was expressing a philosophical view that it was something about you know triumph against adversity or something like that which you know in a sense you can sort of see how you could find that in there but in another sense how banal why you know what what i mean you can you can find that story in the wizard of oz you know yeah. why listen to beethoven this is never a good reason to listen to music and i love the story and i hope it's true uh, it's certainly told about beethoven that when he was asked um by someone what did his third eroica symphony mean which was you know allegedly written sort of in honor of napoleon initially uh, so they said you know what does it mean and he just sat down at the piano and began to play it and that was his response. Mm. And um, Gustav Mahler said that if a composer could say what he wanted to say in words, then he wouldn't say it in music. <laughs> and I think that, that pretty much says it all for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it certainly happens in pop music because, uh, you know, we're you know, uh, prone to this ourselves, that you, when you write about pop music, what, what people do mainly is write about the lyrics mm -hmm. because yeah. they can get hold of that yeah. and they say this is what, the this is what Bob basically. Dylan thought about, you know, yeah. nuclear disarmament or whatever, you know, whereas what... It, what he felt was probably in the music. You yeah, know? it's yeah. just something that comes straight out of it. I, I, you know, I think it's not just in pop music. It's really struck me how in um, in, in classical music, what tends to get reviewed uh, in the newspapers is opera, pretty much all the time. Because <laughs> people can uh, cling on to something. They can. They they have a story to tell. Yeah. Them. They can say, you know, how well a particular part was played, how well it was acted. They can review it like a film. They can talk about the scenery and the setting and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, they don't have to talk so much about the music mm. um, because it's, it's, it's very tricky to write about music. Some people can do it fantastically. Um, Alex Ross, the, uh, the American music critic, does, does that wonderfully. But it's a real skill to be able to do that. So I think very often it's true that we sort of, you know, seize on to music with lyrics, with words, because we can construct and often it's, it's done for us in opera. There is literally a narrative there for us to, you know, to, to hang on to. Um, I think the interesting thing about music is that we have that impulse to do it regardless, that it almost seems to offer itself as having some sort of narrative structure, even though, you know, we don't know what it is. Mm. It or it's seems an imagined a, one or a personal one. Or something. It follows a sort of logical thread. One thing, you know, leads sort of naturally to another. When music is well composed, it does that. And we sort of you know, can't help hearing it in a narrative sense, even though the, the narrative isn't about anything. It's not semantic in that way. But, you know, it has this sort of logic to the way it progresses. Do you think it's more powerful than painting or than visual arts? In people's lives? I think it probably is. Um, well, I think it's, it's more present in people's lives. So, you know, in some sense, it must be more powerful. 
Um, and it's more portable now as well. Which well, is that <laughs> yeah, that that certainly helps. Um, and uh, but but I you know I think it it, it also it, it acts probably more immediately on the emotions than mm. those other forms. You know they they can clearly very much act on the emotions, but not in the same way that the music can. I mean Tolstoy said that music is the shorthand of the emotions. That it's really a sort of a language of the emotions. And in fact, one of the evolutionary theories of where music came from suggests that it began as essentially the same thing as language that music and language were the same thing they call it music language and that they split apart with language being the sort of vehicle the sound vehicle for conveying meaning for semantic meaning and music being the one that we use for emotional meaning right and yeah parallel paths that's interesting i was going to ask you as well in in all your um research into the way that the pop and rock writers have written their stuff is there anybody who stands out as being really unusual in the way they construct a song you know you may get somebody composing with obvious intervals or doing like very catchy memorable tune but is there someone that we we listen to all the time who's really out there that we don't realize is gosh um yeah i mean i'm 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 sure there are you know i think that uh i mean i think one of the one of the striking things about what um david bowie was doing um early in his career was that he was doing unusual things Mm. with um with melody with yeah with melody and and harmony yeah um i mean you know a lot of what he was doing was sort of also pastiche but that in itself was quite interesting because it hadn't you know there hadn't been a lot of that going on in pop music um before then um, so, you know, I think he was sort of starting to use it in new ways. Um, but, you know, there, I mean, I think one of the interesting things now um, is that the, the whole distinction between pop and rock music and the rest of music is breaking down. And um, you have, you know, interesting collaborations going on. People like Sonic Youth, I mean, they've been mm. doing it for a long time. But, you know, I think they're, they're, they're sort of thinking, you know, outside of a normal sort of, you know, pop music yeah. Format and the kinds of sounds that they might use um, are, like the are sort of outside of that. Things, or more like... Yeah, or maybe the um, as much as anything else, maybe the sort of timbre that they're using, just the, the quality of the sound. Yeah. Um, you know, is, is 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 kind of different. But I think that you know there are a lot of people now who are um, just thinking more in terms of using sound in the same sorts of with the same kind of spirit that people like Stockhausen were mm-hmm. um were, were thinking of the atonal um, stuff but, is it all well sort of a- atonal but also just in terms of um what a sound sounds like or what a sound feels like really yeah. you know what a particular kind of sound quality of sound you know what what that does to us and so they're just using a much broader range of so, of, of of sound so are you, so we're more um forgiving of different sounds nowadays because we've heard more yeah. different ones yeah. but I, I and i recognize that myself but i still get the feeling that we're not we, we still sort of expect the same things from melody and structure that you know I, yeah. I, I the music that sounded strange to me when i was 16 much of it still sounds strange to me mm-hmm. whereas my view of rhythm and has changed considerably and, and and what I consider a pleasant noise has changed considerably. Yeah. But I still expect a tune and a pattern. Yeah, and a tune and, is going to be limited yeah, to the note combination. You know, I don't feel any nearer to Stockhausen. I don't know enough about Stockhausen to, to say yeah. anything about him. But, you know, I don't feel any nearer to that kind of music I heard when I was 16 than I, 
than I do now. Well, I think that's because, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I think there are not exactly rules to, to melody, and even if there were, rules are always there to be broken, particularly in music, but there are, th- th- there are rules in the sense that there are certain things that make a melody a melody, certain things that will bind notes together. And, you know, those are the same, whether we're talking about Baroque music or, you know, about modern, you know, electro pop, um, that you see the same kinds of uh, things being done in the melody. So what I was talking about, about small steps, you know, is one Mm. of them. And, um, you know, I think those are big. Those will remain because that's what our brain needs to recognize something as a melody. And, you know, some of the experiments that were done in um, in classical music, if you sort of want to call it that, in particularly in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, um, really started to fragment those. They started to undermine those basic principles of of melody. Um, more or less consciously. I mean, you know, there's no reason why a piece of music has to have melody. Um, Georgi Ligeti's music, uh, for example, the stuff that was, some of it was used in 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, it, it, you know, that often gets rid of melody in the normal sense, but it does other interesting things instead. So, you know, you don't have to have melody in music, I don't think. But when, when we do have melody, when a mu- piece of music sort of, you know, tells us that it's going to be melodic, then we expect it to do certain things, mm. um, you know, overall. And I think those, those are just general rules. Do you think there are such things as dead ends in music? I was reading a thing recently where Clive James was saying that, you know, bebop, beyond a certain point... Get beyond Charlie Parker. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's a desert out there. You know, nobody's gone out there for very good reasons. Whereas Duke Ellington, structure, melody, you know, never loses its, its appeal. Whereas the idea of music is, and musicians always tell us this, that I'm breaking boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going out there when nobody's gone before. Well, I'd sit there and think, well, let me know how you got on when you come back. You know. <laughs> is there a bit of a gulf between musicians and the public often? Oh, things like that? There, there, there is. I mean, you know, people talk in terms of there being experimental music, both in, in you know, popular music and, um, and, and classical music. And, you know, the, the thing, I mean, as a scientist, the thing that occurs to me is that you don't know if an experiment is going to work. It doesn't work simply by the fact that you label it an experiment. Um, so I think it's really important that, you know, you, we do have musical experiments, but it's also important to recognise that that doesn't validate them in themselves, <laughs> that, you know, they, yeah. they may not work. And um, I think there's an increasing consensus now that some of the extreme experiments in what was called serialism, um, so atonal music, what became of atonal music, really, um, in the 1950s, 1960s, that some of those sort of went about as far as you can go, um, you know, in terms of expecting anyone to be able to, to make much of it. listen to it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I guess I think that mu- if we're going to hear something as music, then it has to... Um, it, 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 it has to. We have to be able to make out some coherence, some structure, some yeah. organisation to it. And in some of that experimental music, all of the, the the sort of mechanisms that we have, the cognitive mechanisms that we have for finding order in music, they were one by one. They were sort of being subverted until you know all that was left was was just sounds. Mm. Now you know whether you want to go on calling that music or not is a sort of semantic you know thing, a, a sort of dry debate. But in some ways, it, I think it makes sense to 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 actually start to call that sort of thing sound art because oh, right. you know which is not to I mean, it's just something else. <laughs> yeah, you know it it can be interesting to listen to there. 
can be interesting qualities of sound that go on there but it's not music in the sense of having the sort of logic and coherence that just about all of the, the rest of the world's music shows. How do you get on with the more avant-garde end of rock? Have you ever been there in you know, metal machine music, Lou Reed, or Captain Beefheart, Trap Mass Replica? Yeah, well, I, I quite like it. You know, I quite, I mean, I quite like, I listen to some, you know, Stockhausen, I like Schoenberg a lot, because mm. I like music that where I don't quite know what's going on, um, you know, and what's going to happen. Um, it... it I can listen to it for so long and then, you know, I need something else. They should have made singles. Uh, yeah. I was, one other thing I was really interested in as well was um, somebody told me the other day that Lennon and McCartney had, had completely different writing styles and, like, um, Lennon would, would have far fewer spaces between his notes than McCartney when he's writing a tune. Is that true, that sort of Paul would do big leaps around the keyboard and Lennon would be like, you know stepping up like in a scale that's, and stuff. Or... Well, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that idea. I mean, of course, now, um, you know, Paul McCartney is sort of staking the claim to be the experimental one in the Beatles. So in a <laughs> sense, that would, you know, that would make sense yeah. that, um, that, that maybe, you know, John Lennon's melodies were tended to, or his harmonic structures tended to follow, you know, the standard patterns. Mm, a little more, more close to it to one another and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to sort of listen to them in a new light. Yeah. <laughs> so your next book is not, not about music at all? No, the next book... You I, flit around all over the place. I'm enormously impressed by the range of stuff. Well, it's, it's fun to do that, I guess. It's, um, you know, I want to look for things to write about that are going to hold my interest. So I'm, I'm writing a book about making artificial people. Uh, and your previous your book before this one was about uh, it was about um, gothic architecture. <laughs> and the, it was really about the the, the the what's called the twelfth century Renaissance, the way people started to think differently in the twelfth century, and how that was expressed in gothic architecture, particularly Chartres Cathedral. Well, that's another podcast. <laughs> Philip, thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thank thanks. you. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.